Welcome to episode 114 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. I am your host, Rose Griffin, and I had an amazing conversation today with Rachel from the PTSD SLP. We had touched base in Florida in 2019. Whoa, that seems like a long time ago. I had met her in person at an ASHA conference. I used to go to those conferences. Those used to be so much fun. She is now an SLP program specialist in Broward County, Florida, and previously she she was an SLP at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. On February 14th, 2018, a mass shooting happened at her workplace. And this really led her to look up resources for her students that had undergone trauma. She found trauma-informed care and has been presenting to SLPs and related fields ever since. Rachel is the kindest person and is a bright spot in the field. And the way that her Instagram and her resources and community started was so organic in nature, that she was just caring and getting connected to other speech therapists, other professionals, other students who were experiencing a traumatic event. And she has created resources and a community of support. And today she shares with us all about using a trauma-informed approach. It is a wealth of information and such vital information for us to take in and start utilizing, if we're not already, as providers. Let's get right into this episode. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks so much for joining us on episode 114 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. I am super excited for today's episode. We have with us Rachel Archambo. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to see you again. I know. And when I when I turned my camera on, I said, hey, I haven't really seen you since that one time we were at ASHA before, you know, the world was shutting down with COVID. Mm-hmm. So it must have been November, maybe 2019. It was it in was. Orlando. Okay. Yep. And that was fun. I did. That was kind of cool for me. I think I did an invited presentation with three other SLP BCBAs, and we did it about this autism assessment called the VB Map, and um, and you just happened to be out to eat with some friends that I was meeting up, and then we sat by each other, and then I was like, oh, I like her, she's fun, and then you had an Instagram, and so I've I've loved to see your business grow and just the information that you're sharing. That must have been right when you started. Yes everything. Okay. I started my Instagram July of 2019. So at that point when I was at Asha and I had people who knew that I knew who I was, I was like, what do you mean? I just started. (laughs) Yeah. So it was very cool though. It was very cool. That was neat. It's fun to meet people at conferences. I have so many people now that I've never met, may never meet, but I feel close to because I have this online business, which is kind of this yeah. weird space. But it is nice to touch piece, base with people in real life. At conferences, it's kind of like a nice bond. And you're like, oh, you do exist and you're a real person. And <laughs> this yeah. is fun. So, um, but thanks so much for coming on. I'm excited to have you here. So for those of us that don't know you and your journey, can you tell us how you got into the field and you know just how you knew you wanted to be a speech-language pathologist. Sure. So um, I'm one of the people that said they were going to be a speech pathologist since I was in middle school and I never changed my mind. For better or worse, I never changed my mind. Um, But I have younger twin brothers. Um, They're less than two years younger than me. 
and they grew up needing speech and we had a speech pathologist come to the house at the time. So I remember just like sitting at the kitchen table doing my math work, which I hated and seeing (laughs) them at our dining room table and the speech pathologist had candy and was helping them make sounds. And I am still to this day, the biggest sweet tooth. And I was like, how do I get in there? And when I was in high school and starting to think about what I needed to do, like picking a major or something in college, I had always said that I wanted to do speech and I was, you know, praised for it as a middle schooler, as a high schooler. But when I really thought about it, I went back to those moments of seeing my brothers with the speech pathologist, which therapy is somewhat an embarrassing thing for people. Um, So I wanted to replicate of making it a fun experience, something that people wanted to go to. And, um, that's what really got me into it was seeing a speech pathologist at such an early age and just sticking with it. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. And I think you say that, and I'm just guessing that it might be an embarrassing thing because I know that you work in a high school and, or I'm not sure if you still do. And I know you're going to share kind of that part of your journey, but I understand what you're saying. I I was reading in a Facebook group the other day and it said, well, what do you what do you write on a progress note for a kid who doesn't want to come to speech? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, we got to back it up. We got to call it. We got to call right. a meeting. I did one time in 20 years. I did step away from 20 years as a school-based SLP in May to do ABA speech, but I did have one student in 20 years, which I don't think is bad because I too, the past 10 did middle school, high school, where I had to have a meeting <laughs> with the principal and the student and the parent. And what was funny is we just had those critical conversations and got on the right page. It was a student who stuttered and I really loved working with him. In his final year as a senior, he would just check in with me. I think we did quarterly check-ins and right. he was always right there with me. And sometimes you just have to have those conversations because especially when you're working with kids that age, it is hard, especially it can be stigmatizing. I mean, gosh, the le- last thing you want to do in middle school and high school is have anybody pay attention to you right. or anything besides maybe going viral on TikTok, right? Or something silly. Um, so yeah, so so I know it's part of your journey, but you're going to share with us what motivated you to start PTSD SLP. So can you tell everybody, um, I obviously know uh, yes. probably why you started it, but can you share with um, the listeners because I, I'm, I'm sure not everybody knows. Absolutely. So um, I started working at a high school right after grad school. I was with a contract company. I was uh, placed at a high school, which ended up being my rival high school growing up. Um, So I ended up at this high school and it's called Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And for people that may not be familiar or if that name rings a bell, um, there was uh, a traumatic event, a mass shooting that happened at my workplace in 2018. And I needed a place uh, to figure out how I could care about a student's inability to say an R at the time when, when they don't feel safe on campus and I don't feel safe on campus. So I scoured the internet looking for resources of how to work with students who had been traumatized and I found trauma informed care and it took me a while of looking into these resources until uh, July 2019 is when I created the Instagram page PTSD SLP. And the reason that I made that page was because at that point, 
people had um, heard my name um, on the Facebook groups. They had said, you know, Rachel is the speech pathologist there. And I was getting a lot of support, but we had just about a year, just over a year of resources and, and national spotlight that we were getting a lot of help that other communities weren't getting. And during that time, there were several shootings at schools and the speech pathologists were being sent to me. They're like, talk to Rachel. She's been through this. She has resources and everything. So it became kind of, I, I had a group chat going of here, I'll send you this resource I have with all these other SLPs that had experienced the same thing, but then it kept growing. And I was like, I can't keep adding to this group chat. Mm-hmm. So I created the Instagram page and it became a place to post resources, experiences. Um, and I didn't specifically on my page, I don't talk about like the event itself. Mm-hmm. It's the experiences after talking with kids of, of re-traumatization, triggers, um, anxiety, mental health concerns. I talk about all those things on there. And just based on the ex- the experience, I stayed for those four years after to make sure all those students, all those high schoolers, they had moved on to the next level. Um, but I wanted to still have a place that people could ask for information for this specific event and others for PTSD or trauma in general. Yeah, I think it's amazing the platform that you've created because it is very specific. And I love that you kind of looked around for resources. And because there weren't any, you started this just so organically as this way of building this sense of community. Let me ask you just one question. How long were you in your position or how long were you a speech therapist and potentially in that building? Because this was your first job. So your CFYer? So it was just after my CFY. I completed okay. my first year and then I came back that next year as a district employee. Okay. And it was February. It was uh, Valentine's Day of 2018. So just wow. a year and a half into my speech career. Um, and wow. that was also part of it was I looked back at my grad school and undergrad training and I'm like, do I, can I pull for, I still have all my books and my binders and everything. I'm like, same, same. Looking through through everything. And I'm like, trauma, trauma, trauma. And I can't find anything except Mm -hmm. TBI trauma, like traumatic brain injury. That's Mm -hmm. all that shows up in speech. When you type speech and trauma, it's Mm -hmm. traumatic brain injury. I think with the last few years and being a post pandemic world, Mm -hmm. We are, there's a lot more out there about speech and trauma informed care, which I'm so grateful for because it's needed. Um, but it's like we were starting from the ground up is, is how can this book be related to our field? And it's, it should be used. And we didn't learn it in grad school or undergrad. There's some, I, I've talked to a lot of grad students now that are saying that they do have some courses, um, counseling courses. They talk about trauma informed care, and I'm shocked and I'm thrilled and I'm I'm very happy that we're talking about it. That's amazing. I actually, you know, I still have my books. I'm a lot older than you, but I, I still have. Every time I clean my storage room, which is once a year, I'm kind of gearing up for that now. I go through and it's like one year I throw away the tests and the folders. And then the next year I throw away the notebooks. But I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to get rid of some of that it stuff. Is. But if you look back on it, it's really just kind of this way to get started in the field. But even yes. just having a school-based course, a course that's maybe even elective. I know I had a course about school-based speech therapy, but mm-hmm. it absolutely did not go over anything about even just Alice trainings or whatever the training right. protocols are. And I feel like 
even when you went to school, you're so much younger than me. It would have been good to just even discuss that these things are a possibility or you might have these types of trainings in your school or this is these are what the statistics are. I mean, I think it's just good to be informed. I'm sure you're never, ever fully prepared for something like that. I can't imagine. You're not. No. And, and it... it the purpose of my page is I try to say it doesn't matter that I went through this very national event because you could be having a class in front of you that mm -hmm. any any child sitting in front of you, any patient, it doesn't matter what age, they might have experienced a traumatic event. And you should treat all the people in front of you the same way, which is that trauma-informed care mindset. And then you avoid risking re-traumatization, which is the goal. Yeah, I love that. So we haven't talked about this on the podcast yet. So I'm excited to dig in. So when we say trauma informed care, or, you know, can you give us a working definition of what that what that kind of means? And then I'm thinking, how can we translate that into anybody who's listening? Because obviously, being a speech therapist in BCBA, we have, you know, a lot of different mm -hmm. people listening, but just as professionals. So what, what it really is a working definition of trauma informed care? So trauma-informed care, the easiest way to go about it is there's three R's, is realizing the prevalence of trauma, recognizing the effects, and responding to it. And also there's an additional R of avoiding re-traumatization. That is our goal of being trauma-informed care, trauma-informed mindset. And I say this all the time, there is not a prescriptive therapy technique for trauma-informed care. It's a mindset. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of speaking to people. So um, there are some pillars of trauma-informed care, which are safety, choice, collaboration and mutuality, trust and transparency, empowerment, and then cultural, historical, and gender issues. So when I present on the topic, I talk about those six pillars. And I ask whatever profession you are, during a session, a 30 minute session, I want you to look and kind of check off those things. Did I give this client the opportunity of safety? Did the, did the client feel safe? Did I give them choice? Did I collaborate with them? Did we have mutual respect? Um, do they trust me? And I, I ask people, especially we're in a very caring field. Mm -hmm. You might feel that you are offering these things, but you really have to take it from the student's perspective um, and have that conversation with them. Um, you want to empower them. And then the cultural, historical, and gender issues, um, you need to be aware of certain things working with a client that's in front of you to risk re-traumatization. So, um, I think of one example of my school specifically had a very high population of transgender children. Mm -hmm. And we know just based on statistics that transgender children are more st statistically at harm for harming themselves or suicide. Yeah. So if I can do anything to provide them a safe room, choice, collaboration, mutuality, I can reduce the risk of harm to them by providing them the safe room. Okay. I love that. So it's safety, choice, collaboration, cultural. Yes. Cultural, historical, gender issues, empowerment, trust and transparency. All of okay. those. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Trust and transparency. Yeah. Yes. That's really good. And that's super important when we're dealing with IEPs and everything. I actually saw mm. a discussion online today that uh, someone asked whether they should discuss with their student about their IEP. And uh, like from a trauma-informed perspective, 
we absolutely should. Why is this child sitting with us? Why are they working with us? We should give them some involvement. And I know at the high school level, it's a bit different that we have them join their IEP meetings and advocate for themselves. We, we always want them to do that. And to start at an earlier age is even more uh, important. But we want to collaborate and, and whatever our client, their age, their setting, we should be collaborating with them. I love that. And I also feel that way because I've worked with older students for a long time and we would have our students involved. And, you know, I, you know, it's the autism outreach podcast. So I yeah. really talk about kids who are really like, you know, trying to have a voice and, you know, things like that. So it's a little different, but I, as a school-based therapist, I work with all different types of kids, kids that don't have autism. I know. I don't talk about that on Instagram because, you know, online, you got to talk about one thing, but, um, and we would always have our kids involved. And I remember in the IEP meetings, which I always really loved, you know, helping to put it together and things mm -hmm. like that. But I remember one kid I was working with in a high school setting and uh, he was new. He was new to the school. And I think I had seen him or observed him and he had autism, but he, um, you know, he was in all regular classes with resource support and all those different types of things. And I remember talking to the teacher and saying like, oh, I'm going to go see so-and-so so I just want to touch base with them before their IEP and go over their goals and things like that. And they were like, oh, don't tell him he yep. has autism. I've and I was, like, yep. I was like, I was like, what are you talking right. about? This is a 10th grader. Right. I know his parents. His parents don't want him. This is what kills my heart in this yeah. public school because in a public school, you can't say what you really feel. I mean, you can to your friends, but you can't in the meeting. It's very hard. It is very hard. You have to take so many different uh, viewpoints and opinions and your expertise is not always acknowledged. And that is that was really hard for me as a speech therapist in the school, probably why I have my own business. But I just that that was hard for me because I felt like he's this shouldn't be a secret because it goes back to the whole autism is not an illness, right? And, right. and we shouldn't shame someone because they have an right. IEP. And that's never what we want a kid to feel. But right. it, when you have this top-down mentality that it's not every parent's going to be like that. I'm sure 99% of parents right. are not like that. But then it gets you into a pickle. Have you ever been into a situation like that? I have been in that exact situation <laughs> that the parent asked me, you know, not to say anything. And, and, this was a student that was struggling with their identity as well as that they felt so weird, a quote from them, that they did not understand why they couldn't fit in. And we have research now showing late, adult, uh, late diagnosed autistic adults mm -hmm. that are saying the diagnosis was such a helpful thing for them at 30 years old to get diagnosed mm -hmm. because they right. finally could put the dots together of why they aren't fitting in in certain ways mm -hmm. or it just made more sense. And you, when we were talking about the pillar of like cultural, historical and gender issues, we can say that autism has a culture too. And especially with the mm -hmm. neurodiversity movement, mm -hmm. it's important for us as professionals to understand all the cultural aspects of autism too, because we can educate parents on the all the viewpoints out there is like mm -hmm. some parents feel that this is not, you know, this is a character trait that there's nothing to fix. And then there's many others that feel the opposite way. So just us being professionals, we need to know every part of the culture so that we can best be advocates for our clients. 
Yes, absolutely. And that is hard. That I think that was the hardest part of being a public school therapist. I didn't walk away because I didn't love the work. I really loved the work. It was just when you're dealing with so many different people, it's just really hard. And I worked in a very affluent school district and people had, yeah, that's what I thought too. And people have very strong opinions. And, you know, I, I just, because I, I know I'm a BCBA, but I, there are things from the neurodiversity movement as far as masking and right. conversation goals and lunch bunch. And, you know, I talk about all these things on Instagram and TikTok, but I'll never forget. I had a kid who had a turn-taking goal and he just didn't need it. I never thought he was mm-hmm. going to be that kind of kid that really enjoyed that dialogue. Right. He could talk to you enough and do the small talk, but that's what's hard. Then you have to well, work on those goals. <laughs> right. And that same parent had asked me to put in a goal about, and the kid had was already working with the BCBA, but the parent asked me to put in a goal of will socialize with peers during lunchtime. And it was like a little bit more um, like strict than that. I can't remember the exact wording, but I was like, hi, I don't like socializing with people (laughs) on my lunch. So that's not really fair. Like that's their free time. So uh, that's from a trauma. I'm constantly evaluating things for their ability to be trauma informed. And I have to say to myself, what harm could this cause? Right. And over time, if that goal was in place, you could say that this student had no free time, had no time to decompress. And the Mm -hmm. stress that's involved with that could amount to much more anxiety. It could. Not saying that that is the Mm -hmm. result of that, but that's why you have to ask yourself, am I giving safety, choice, collaboration, mutuality? Like the choice aspect is the child's being given choice with that goal? Probably not. Mm -hmm. So it's just something to consider when we're in sessions. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And that was one of, you know, one of my questions, you know, why is it so important for our students? And, you know, what if we don't take these things into consideration? I know that we've been talking about trauma-informed care for, I feel like maybe five or six years. I feel like it's kind of been in my orbit and thinking about it. But, and I feel like there's probably more CEU offerings about it and things like that. But, you know, what are the what if we don't do this? What if we're not thinking of this? Because we have a lot to think about as professionals and as and parents as well. But what do you think some of the risk factors or consequences are if we don't take these very important things into consideration? The consequence of not implementing trauma-informed care is possible re-traumatization or triggering. So mm-hmm. um, that most of the time, re-traumatization or triggering is unintentional from our end. So we can't possibly know every single person's triggers. That's not possible. But at my school, for example, some th- one of the biggest things that I recommend people to do is remove violent language. And especially in our field as, as speech, we talk about figurative language constantly. And um, so I actually have, I left Douglas in October 2021. I'm still with my district, um, but I'm a speech program specialist now. So we are the sixth largest district in the country. So I have 30 schools that I support the SLPs at those schools, which is just wild. Um, So when I speak to all of these schools, when I started my new job, I realized that there were phrases, figurative language that was being said that I had not heard in five years at that school. So one of the, shoot me a text, shoot me an email. Mm -hmm. Because of what we know happened at that school, it was just icky to say. So it wasn't ever a conversation that any of us had. It wasn't a training that came of, take that out of your language. It was just, 
something that we naturally did of going away from that gun related humor um, or figurative language. You, but there's other violent language out there. So have you ever like woken up in the morning with the flu and you're like, I feel like I got hit by a truck. What happens if I'm talking to someone that literally that happened to? Right. So by removing this language, violent language, violent figurative language, we are able to reduce the risk of triggering someone in that form. So especially at school, especially in the presence of little ones, I remove that from my language. It's the same thing if I were working at a veterans affairs hospital, I can remove gun related uh, violent language, violent language in general, because the risk of triggering someone is much higher with mm -hmm. that population. But most of the time, we're not going to know who's sitting in front of us. We're not going to know what their experiences mm -hmm. are. So by removing violent language for everyone, the risk of re-traumatization is less but a lot of it could be unintentional. I tell the story all the time of how we had a fire drill a few years after the, um, the event. And I had one student in my room and he has autism and mm -hmm. we went outside, we cleared, um, we went to our evacuation zone. And then, uh, one of the coaches, it's a very large campus. It's 3,600 students, which is larger than mm -hmm. some people's colleges. Right. Um, so, he had a golf cart and he's like, come on, Miss A, come on, a student. And we got on and I was hyping it up. I was like, oh my gosh, have you ever been on a golf cart? And he goes, yeah, the day of the shooting when they, you know, drove me to my mom. Like, and I was like, well, I couldn't have avoided that. Right. Like, so there are certain steps that we can take to reduce re-traumatization, but we're never going to be able to remove everyone's triggers. We know for autistic people, sensory issues a lot. So like mm -hmm. with lights, fluorescent lights, my lights were always off. Mm -hmm. um, I had like a lamp, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I had natural light coming in. I had a corner for um, regulation, all these things to give them choice and the, and the feeling of safety. It's if you go by all the pillars of trauma informed care to give them buy-in to speech, mm -hmm. it reduces the risk of re-traumatization. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, I like that idea of kind of analyzing the way that we say things. I think that just things that have come up in, in the world, whether it's COVID or George Floyd or some, you yes. know, horrific thing that, you know, we're dealing with. I think that we all kind of say things that we don't really think have much weight. But if said in front of the right person, would you say that in front of that person? You know, you just don't know who you're in front of. And I think probably the thing about trauma, and I, I don't know, is that you may say something to somebody, it could be a trigger, and you may never know that it yes. was a trigger for anything. Is that probably yeah. a reality that people might not even be embarrassed, or maybe they don't even know that it's a trigger for them. And it's something that has come up and makes them realize, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So I know you said there's no universal strategies, but do you, I like the idea of remove violent language. I mean, I think too, that's, that's important kind of thinking of how, how we're saying things. Um, do you think there are any universal strategies or anything other takeaways people can get that might be tied to kind of this mindset or these pillars, it seems are important to think about? It, so Overall, with trauma-informed care, the reason that we do this is because we know that experiencing trauma relates to more health issues as an adult. There was the ACEs study that was back in the 90s, which, I mean, there's been multiple studies um, 
since that have added more diversity to it. Um, there's other amazing um, researchers that have done uh, more information on, on trauma. We know that when someone, especially a child, has experienced trauma, the more traumatic events, the worse their health will be, um, risk of cancer, heart disease, uh, shorter life expectancy. So the reason that we do this is to prevent re-traumatization trauma um, and responding to it um, by providing all these aspects of trauma-informed care. We are able to do what our job is, um, speech, uh, ECBA, everything. We are able to do that. We don't want to harm anyone. And that's why we go into this field is mm -hmm. to help. We don't want to harm. But even right. acknowledging that what you could say could cause an unintentional harm, mm -hmm. that's the first step is just analyzing what you are saying, what you are doing. I've gotten so many messages. Um, I presented at the SLP summit two weeks ago. Oh. And People have reached out to me since that they have said, I tried, you know, understanding the behavior that was in front of me. And I just asked them like, hey, you know, you seem a little sad today. Is everything okay? And the student said he lost a water bottle. So they went on a, you know, <laughs> a trek around the school and they found right. that water bottle. But it was something that before the, the speech pathologist would have internalized. Why is he acting this way? He's, you know, he just doesn't want to be in speech when something was wrong. And um, there's a great book by Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry that is a great introduction to trauma-informed care, and it's called What Happened to You? Mm -hmm. And it asks the question, what happened to you, instead of what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. um, and that's the mindset that trauma-informed care is supposed to have, is it's no longer why are they acting that way in mm -hmm. a mean way, it's why are they acting this way? Yeah, I like that being able to analyze that too. Just like you're saying, it's a mindset shift. I think mm -hmm. that's really important. I think sometimes when we're in school, we just don't talk about <laughs> these types of things. We're like, here's the IP and you got to get your minutes in and you have yes. to have your data points because especially probably in your district too. I mean, once I had my whole yeah. data binder subpoenaed, but oh, yeah. I felt, you know, I'm good on the data. So I was good <laughs> right. there. But I mean, these are the things that we're dealing with. It's like you go from one meeting, it's got 20 people and an advocate in there and lawyers and, you know, then you're going to see a kid that maybe isn't having the best day and Sometimes it's hard to switch gears like that, right. but I like that idea of what happened to you and kind of analyzing it it further. There's definitely there's um a, a PhD BCBAD. His name's Dr. Greg Hanley, and he's been talking about. He has this ten hour training. He's very oh, wow. very popular in the ABA field, and he's been talking about. Um, trauma-informed care and approaches and things like that. And we just had um, actually a speech therapist who's also a BCBA and got his PhD with Dr. Hanley, Corey Whalen. So uh, really good kind of just this conversation of things that, you know, I didn't really even talk about in graduate school. I don't think, I, no. I don't think that I had a bad experience in graduate school. I had no. a good experience, but I don't know if we were looking at the whole child and focused no. on or the whole client, really, you know, right. just these ideas. But I, I do think things have changed so much since I was in graduate school. I graduated in 2003. So, um, you well, know, even, I, I never even took a course on autism, which I just think wow. is so wild. Yeah, well, did even, you? No, well, <laughs> I, I don't remember. I think I blocked out most of it. But even <laughs> one of the things I talk about is that trauma-informed care is not only for our clients. Most of the people that reach out are SLP grad mm -hmm. students that say, please speak to my professors. That, right. 
I am traumatized here. And it's serious. Like I had a couple bad experiences from professors that if they had been trained in trauma informed care, Mm -hmm. they would have gone through the pillars and Mm -hmm. said like, how can I offer support versus like attacking, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot, I'm happy that professors are reaching out and asking for information on it because they can apply it to themselves in their position Mm -hmm. and teach it to the grad students that will be working with clients of any age. And it's important to realize that this is for any type of client, any population, Mm -hmm. any setting. Um, when I first presented people thought because I, this happened in a school that this was a school-based issue. And I've been much more clear when I've been presenting the last year of for all settings, I make Mm -hmm. sure to say it. And I want to make sure we are using it when I think about, um, stroke patients Mm -hmm. and they're in a rehab facility or anything like that they have lost independence like what did they lose coming here they had a Mm -hmm. possibly a traumatic event of the injury that brought them in there you know Mm -hmm. so we have to be aware of trauma at all times and we as the provider can also experience trauma sometimes based on our job um, Mm -hmm. and other trauma that we have outside so it's just always acknowledging that trauma is out there Mm -hmm. and to be mindful of it and to act i love that so if people want to learn more about trauma-informed care what are some resources or places that book was good what happened to you i haven't heard of that so thanks for sharing that but anything else that might be helpful Yes, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. That's right here. Um, I I think that book that I recommended, um, What Happened to You, is the best place as an introduction because Mm -hmm. we've all known Oprah forever. She grew (laughs) up with very traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. And it's a conversation between her and one of the leading experts of trauma. And she evaluates certain... um, instances in her life that she's like, oh, that was trauma. That was me as now a billionaire experiencing Mm -hmm. trauma from my childhood. Mm. Um, So I think it's a great introduction. And I love that they give a trigger warning in the beginning saying like, this Mm -hmm. is a lot of heavy material and please put the book down. Like, I don't know what other authors are saying, like, you know, take a break. Right. Um, The place that I learned about trauma-informed care was traumainformedoregon.org. They've got some great resources on there. Um, but there's, there's a lot, a lot out there and it's, uh, a good place to start is that book and that website. Wonderful. Awesome. And if people want to find out more about you and your work, what is the best place to find you? You can find me at my Instagram, which is ptsd.slp. And I have a Facebook group that is called PTSD resources for SLPs. And that's more of people posting on there, more of a discussion board, um, but yeah, I'm most active on Instagram. I do have a TikTok with the same uh, PTSD SLP. I'm still <laughs> just getting into that because I spend most Check of my time out. watching. I spend most of my time watching TikTok, <laughs> not creating them. It's a problem. Oh. Um, but no, um, it's just important to, you know, acknowledge that trauma is out there and mm-hmm. that you also can't be the judge of other people's trauma. If someone tells you something happened, you can't be like, oh, it's not even that bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's trauma is out there. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Make sure to subscribe and so you don't miss an episode and remember to keep things fun and functional. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. 
Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.